There's only one issue that can kill us all, and that is a nuclear war. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. For this episode, we wanted to talk about two of the hottest topics in the nuclear world, presidential nuclear authority and North Korea's latest missile test. You just heard a small segment from our interview with Congressman Ted Lieu from California, who has introduced a bill in the U.S. House of Representatives that would prohibit the president of the United States from starting a nuclear war without congressional approval. There's a companion bill introduced in the U.S. Senate by Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. We talked to Congressman Liu about the bill, why he believes this issue is so important, and how his own military experience has impacted his thinking. So, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. And I think the first thing I wanted to ask you is, why did you get interested in presidential nuclear authority? I served on active duty in the Air Force. I'm still in the reserves. So through that experience, I was aware of how our nuclear weapons would be launched. In college, I also uh, studied international relations uh, as part of my political science major. I also did computer science, but I've always had an interest in foreign policy. I worked on uh, different uh, arms control, and in terms of nuclear weapons, it always was something to me that I thought is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And you have extensive military experience, right? So how did that kind of guide your thinking on all of this? So the reason we have nuclear weapons is to make sure they're not used, ever. And we've been in a state of mutual assured destruction, which has, in fact, kept the peace for a very long time. I fully support that system, even though it does sound mad, Uh, but uh, it has kept the peace. However, it can be triggered very quickly into a downward spiral because there's so few controls on when nuclear weapons get launched in the United States. So we often get asked, you know, does the president actually have sole authority to launch nuclear weapons? Tomorrow, if Donald Trump wanted to wake up and he just said, you know what, I'm going to launch a nuke, could he do it? Yes. That is what's so troublesome. If you look at our nuclear launch approval process, it basically says you need uh, the national command authority to do it. And it sounds really impressive till you read it. It's two people. It is the president And then when he makes the decision to launch nuclear weapons, the Secretary of Defense executes the order. And under uh, the law, the Secretary of Defense cannot object, has to simply execute it. As a result, it really is just one person, President of the United States, who gets to decide whether thousands of nuclear weapons should launch. To me, that's flat out unconstitutional. And our whole government is set up around checks and balances, yet Congress couldn't stop him, right? That is correct. The Supreme Court couldn't stop him. That is correct. And as you said, even the Secretary of Defense couldn't stop him. That is correct. If you look at our Constitution, the framers went to great lengths to put checks and balances in on the president. They created an entire judiciary to stop the president. They created an entire legislative branch to stop the president. And then they gave the greatest power they knew at that time, the power to declare war to Congress. Uh, there is no way that the framers would have allowed this kind of system where one person can kill hundreds of millions of people in less than an hour by launching thousands of nuclear weapons. That is war. If you don't call that war, you've just read it out of the Constitution. Uh, So the bill uh, by Senator Markey and me uh, is quite simple. Uh, It basically says 
the Constitution gave Congress the power to declare war. Uh, you, Mr. President, cannot uh, launch a first use in nuclear weapons without Congress first authorizing it. So just to be clear, if another country launched nuclear weapons at us, would the president still have the authority to respond or would he have to consult Congress? No, the president could respond in that case. We do not uh, address uh, or in any way minimize the United States' inherent right to self-defense. Gotcha. So the president can still uh, take whatever action he deems necessary for the self-defense of the United States. So I'm sure you've heard a lot of criticism of this bill. Um, I know it is bipartisan now. Uh, Walter Jones, is that correct? In North yes, Carolina, it is bipartisan. Um, has, has signed on to the yeah. bill. And I think we'll get more people, too. Mm-hmm. Every time the president does something crazy, we get more and more supporters. So uh, the criticism of the bill that I often hear in the NGO community is, well, first, you know, this makes the United States vulnerable. You know, We need to have the ability to be able to launch a first-strike nuclear weapon to make everyone safe. What would be your response to that? That's just not true. The reason that former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry supports his legislation is uh, he has stated on many occasions there is no scenario that he can envision uh, that will require nuclear weapons that our amazing U.S. military could not do with conventional weapons. We have an amazing fleet of bombers, the B-2, the B-1, B-52s. We've got uh, sea-launched cruise missiles, air-launched cruise missiles. We've got so many different ways to utterly devastate and destroy a target. We've seen, you know, the MOAB, right, being launched and the vision of it sort of blowing up this huge place in Afghanistan. We have all these uh, weapons. There is no reason to use a nuclear device that our conventional weapons could not handle. And the other criticism I often hear, and this is more political, is you're a Democrat, you're a congressman, the president's a Republican, you're just trying to get at Trump because you don't like Trump. Is that actually the case? Uh, Not at all. Actually, our first attempt at this was to get President Obama to go to a no first use policy. There were indications from various media reports they was thinking about it, but that his staff was pushing back on it. We actually introduced this bill when President Obama was in office. And at that time, most people believed that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. Uh, Senator Mark and I definitely believed that. And when we introduced the bill, uh, it was to put a check and balance on the president as a structural matter. We thought any president needs to have uh, this bill in place. So in 2028, when Ted Wu is president of the United States, takes the inauguration in 2029, if this was the first bill that came to your desk in the Oval Office, would you sign it? Uh, I would uh, absolutely sign it. So one more question. A lot of times this whole thing about presidential authority, nuclear weapons, it seems sort of out of reach for the average American family sitting at home and spending their Friday night together watching a movie. Why do you think they should care about this? Like, How does it actually affect every American? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, We all of us deal with hundreds of issues every day, you know, from picking up your kids uh, to, you know, what's going to happen next year in terms of, you know, uh, the economy um, to, you know, where we're going to maybe take a vacation to, am I going to lose my job tomorrow? There's all sorts of things we deal with and think about. There's only one issue that can kill us all, and that is a nuclear war. And uh, that's why I'm so passionate about this. Uh, Not only would a nuclear war, you know, devastate the places where the bombs explode, uh, but if you look at it in terms of the nuclear fallout, uh, a nuclear winter would happen if there were a lot of nuclear weapons that were detonated. 
And that would actually affect multiple countries and huge parts of the world. So uh, many people could die even though a nuclear bomb uh, was nowhere near them when it detonated. Congressman, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Last weekend, North Korea tested yet another ballistic missile. But this wasn't just any test. Greg Tarrin, a fellow policy analyst here at the center, is with me to discuss exactly what happened. Greg, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back on the pod. No problem at all. So last weekend, there was this big test. It was, by all accounts, one of the longest tests, if not the longest test the longest test, yeah. have done. Can you give us a little background about what happened? Yeah, so this week, last weekend, uh, they launched a missile that's being dubbed the Hwasong-12. Uh, it traveled about 500 miles, 800 kilometers. Uh, but the really interesting thing here is it was at a really steep trajectory, and it went really high in the air. Really, really high in the How air. How high? Uh, so the, the numbers, and I've got them in front of me here, 2,100 kilometers, or you know, 1,300 miles, uh, for some, like, relevant points in the space uh, scenario here. The ISS, the International Space Station, is 249 miles in the air. So this launch was five times higher. And the Hubble telescope is 335 miles in orbit, which is four times higher. So this thing went way higher. So does a normal ballistic missile go that high? No. So what they were doing was, uh, I guess they're trying to be considerate of other countries. They didn't want to test the full range, uh, but they wanted to see how it would handle both uh, distance and also reentry. So they fired at extremely high, steep trajectory, uh, and it still landed in the Sea of Japan. So they didn't overfly any countries, though it did land kind of close to Russia, even though Russia's denying that happened. Yeah, so if you're Japan or Russia, you yeah. don't want to see a ballistic didn't, missile from exactly. North Korea going right over you. <laughs> exactly. Not a good way to pass the weekend. <laughs> okay. So it's a big test. It went really high. Deemed a success, by the way. Yeah. I mean, by, yeah. by all accounts, it was deemed a success. I know North Korea had, had a couple launches that were having a hard time getting off the ground. Yeah. Uh, we're blowing up shortly after taking off. Uh, this was deemed a successful test. And North Korea wanted us to know about it. I mean, they showed it off in pictures and videos and press yeah, releases. Yeah. They, they kind of bragged about it. And so it's a new missile, right? It was just paraded for the first time in public just last month. Yeah, so, so we were, when we saw the, uh, the videos of the parade, we were all wondering what that missile is, and now we know. Um, and, and the distance is kind of alarming. We had a, a gentleman who... Uh, Got to give credit to David Wright over at uh, UCS, mm-hmm. Union for Concerned Scientists. But he flattened out the trajectory to see about what the range would be. And he was saying it was about 4,500 kilometers or, or 2,800 miles. Uh, so in terms of like U.S. targets that would be in range there, uh, you're not going to reach the United States, the, the mainland United States by any means. Uh, Hawaii is still outside the but range. it could hit Guam. It could hit Guam. And we have U.S. installations in Guam, absolutely. Right. Uh, so I had an interview where I was asked, why is North Korea testing missiles, right? Yeah. And I had an answer to that, but I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Like, why are they testing missiles so often? Before Kim Jong-un, they tested some missiles ashore, but then Kim Jong-un came into power. And for the last few years, there have been more missile tests than we've ever yeah. seen. They had yeah. two dozen last year. They're at how many this year? Seven, eight? Uh, at like least seven missile tests this year, yeah. So and why, a do you think why do you think they're doing that? I mean, I think people don't understand. Why are they testing so many missiles? Why are they being so provocative? Well, I think I don't understand as well. I think it's important <laughs> to note North Korea is one of the most opaque countries in the world. I mean, they are a black box of decision making. Uh, but something to think about, 
Uh, it's about survival, frankly. That's at least my guess. Exactly would be, what I said. They are trying to preserve the Kim dynasty. They're trying to preserve the regime. And the Trump administration's strategy thus far has been what we've described as consistently inconsistent. Yeah, it's been chaotic. So on one hand, they say all options are on the table. But then in the next sentence, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will say, except diplomacy. Yeah. Unless... North Korea gives into all of our demands immediately, which is of course unrealistic. Unrealistic, and it's basically a, a holdover. The conversation's not going to happen. You're not going to open negotiations yeah. at that point. And but in our, in our last podcast, we talked with Dr. Jim Walsh from MIT, who's sure. one of our board members as well, and he said, "Look, we talk to the North Koreans almost never anymore. We don't even have a line of communication open, at least publicly. Why do you think it's important for us to at least have some channel of communication, or at least try?" to have a diplomatic option on the table. So I think the reason you want diplomacy on the table is because the other options are just worse. I mean, diplomacy with North Korea is going to be hard. It's going to be a challenge. I'm not even 100% sure the current administration uh, is up for it. I, there are so many positions at State Department, DOD, Treasury that are open still. And these are really relevant positions that are necessary for fighting the proliferation threat. Uh, but I think you want diplomacy on the table because the other options are a, either A, you let North Korea go unchecked, uh, and that's just not sustainable. I mean, we're going to be racing towards a conflict. Yeah, or you continue sanctions, which is fine. That's a tool that hopefully will lead to diplomacy. But, but it's, if diplomacy is not exactly yeah. diplomacy is not on the table, you're not going to get there. Yeah, I and mean, then, clearly, sanctions if they worked, then they wouldn't be if they worked on their own. Sorry, sure. Then they wouldn't just be firing all these missiles all the time. Yep. And then lastly, you know, military engagement is is a. It should never be the first option. It should always be the last option. And b. It's going to be messy, and it's going to be messy in a big way. We have a lot of U.S. troops in the region. We have a lot of uh, U.S. allies in the region. Right. So is there anything that we should be watching on the Korean Peninsula that we haven't discussed already? Yes. Yeah, South Korea had a election recently. They just elected new president, President Moon, uh, who was much more open to engagement with North Korea than uh, you know now-removed President Park was. Uh, and so we'll have to see how South Korea's new government interacts both with North Korea and also with the United States in terms of roping in North Korea's activity. Adds something new to the equation, it seems. Absolutely. It's a new chemical in the, uh, in the equation. All right. Thanks for being with us, Greg. Yeah. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please share it with your friends and family. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash arms control center. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.